This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 366th episode, we have a bunch of news, including more from SVP and the annual meeting. Specifically, we're going to have the biomechanics and taphonomy sessions, as well as a few other talks. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Saltipus, and a fun fact. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we have two new patrons to thank at the shout out level. And they're Scorpius Khan and English Graham. Thank you both so much for joining and helping us keep the podcast running. And then, as always, we want to thank some of our other patrons who are also at the shout out level continuing to support us. And this week, we're thanking Vincentrosaurus, Chris, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Tom. Aaron Rose Emsworth Source, Gordon Adon and Jackie Cephalosaurus, Richard, and Ayumi. Yeah, thank you all so much for helping us keep our dinosaur podcasts going and all the bits streaming. And don't forget, patreon.com slash I know dino is the place to go for all your rewards or to sign up if you haven't done that yet. And before we jump into all the SVP Society Vertebrate Paleontology goodness for this week, we did have a listener question asking about the difference between a poster and a talk. Now, all posters and talks are vetted by a committee and approved beforehand. The difference is that talks tend to get more in-depth. Yeah, basically people submit a request to talk or do a poster, and I think sometimes they get shifted because in general... Like Sabrina said, the talks are more in-depth, and most people want to talk a lot about their work, so they'd rather do a talk. I think they're a little bit more prestigious, but there are people, especially like undergrads in some programs or sometimes grad students that are still sussing out an idea or really anybody who's in the earlier phases of research might want to just do a poster to get the idea in front of other people maybe get some ideas percolating some more sometimes people are like i really wish i had this specimen or access to this or i if anybody knows about this type of fossil that would really help me clarify things so sometimes posters are in that way but posters are literally more like a science fair where it's a piece of paper that somebody puts together sometimes it's pretty simple and it's just like a big image of something like a skeletal reconstruction of a new dinosaur and it's basically like hey this is this awesome thing i found other times it's like 12 point font on a poster the size of almost a wall <laughs> where there's a ton of information you know it's almost like an entire journal article jammed into a single piece of paper it really just varies depending on who's presenting it and when the conference is in person 
People who are giving the talks have 15 minutes up on stage and a couple minutes at the end to answer questions. And people who are presenting posters, they have a designated time where they can stand in front of their poster and answer questions as people walk up to them, just like a science fair. Yeah. So the posters are usually up for a day, but then there's like two to three hours where all the people that have a poster up are supposed to be at their poster to answer questions. And those that's one of the most fun parts, actually, because like everybody's in there milling around, trying to see all these posters, trying to ask a bunch of questions. It's really fun. You get a lot more interactivity at posters than you do at the live talks. Mm-hmm. But this year, because it was virtual, you could ask people questions who did talks and posters at the same, they call them networking sessions. Mm-hmm. And also, unfortunately, this year, most of the posters didn't have any audio or anything to go with them. So you're just sort of looking at a poster more or less out of context. Well, maybe half. Yeah. But the first year it was virtual. I think most people recorded some audio and made it a little easier to figure out what was going on. But anyway, jumping into our talks and posters, we're starting with the biomechanics and functional morphology section which is all about how the dinosaurs moved or chewed or flapped wings, things like that. It's probably one of my favorite sessions, maybe even my favorite session. It's Mm. really cool because it's all about like how the dinosaurs actually moved and it sort of brings them to life, which is really fun. So the first one I want to talk about was really great. It was by Habib and Pittman, and it was looking at whether Archaeopteryx was quote unquote going up or going down. Oh, in terms of flight. Yeah, but not in terms of flight like ground up versus trees down. Is in terms of whether it was evolving flight or whether it was evolving flightlessness mm. from an earlier flying animal. So basically, they looked at four different factors. They had the bone strength, the feather shape, the wing anatomy, and the flapping power. And this they could use those things to answer the questions of could they launch using their wings, you know, like, could they actually get off the ground? Could they then climb up vertically in the air? Would they basically just be like controlled falling? (laughs) Or could they fly steadily in sort of a straight path once they get going? So they used the Munich Archaeopteryx as the sample. And what they found was that launching was no problem. So they could either by using their wings and possibly running a little bit, get up off the ground. Climbing out was, as they described it, possible, but the rate of climb is very low. So mm. <laughs> it's like maybe they could climb, but that's that's a big struggle getting up. And then the last piece of sustaining flight is essentially barely maybe. So they had probably just enough muscle that they could sustain flapping and keep going, but it looks like the feathers were a little bit unstable because they were too symmetric. So it would have been pretty hard to sustain flight because as they're going, they'd just be like, yeah, (laughs) like about to tip over all the time, basically, because the feathers are asymmetric, but on the scheme of bird feathers, when you want asymmetric to create lift, they're a little bit too symmetric. So it just, yeah, destabilizes them a little bit. That all leads them to believe like it's not, a great flyer, but that doesn't really tell you whether it's on its way up or down. Mm-hmm. So to look into that, they were looking at some of the other anatomy features of Archaeopteryx, and it does look really weird. It has very long legs, but its wings aren't particularly large. So right there, you might be thinking, oh, that is a little bit like, say, an ostrich or an emu. They have really long legs, but they have not so great wings, mm-hmm. <laughs> relatively. But 
probably more importantly is actually where it lived. So it lived on the islands of Europe, and we know that lots of modern birds become flightless when they get to islands. Like kiwis? Yeah, like kiwis, there's birds on the Hawaiian Islands and Galapagos. It happens all over the place. It's really interesting because it turns out that when you're on an island, being flightless is actually sort of an advantage because if you're trying to fly somewhere and you're on a remote island, you're not going to make it. And so the ones that can fly pretty well and then set off (laughs) to try to make it somewhere don't survive to have new babies. So the ones that fly the worst actually are the ones that stick around and end up creating new bird generations. And after a few thousand or hundred thousand years, you end up with birds that can't really fly so well. Interestingly, they pointed out that a lot of birds, flightless birds, do maintain wings that look like they could maybe fly. So they're, it's not all kiwi birds that have absolutely basically no wings. Some of them have like reasonably large-ish wings, so they look like they could do a little something. And if you found a fossil of it, you might think of it as sort of like an archaeopteryx, like where it's like, well, it's got some wing, but they're not great wings. So based on this, are they thinking it was losing the ability to fly? I don't think they know exactly, but that it's proposed as like, it's more likely that it was losing the ability to fly than it was gaining the ability to fly. Mm-hmm. At least that's where they're leaning. And based on the strength of the humerus and femur, they said that Archaeopteryx looks more like a diving bird. That's when you do one of those principal component analyses and you sort of plot out the features of the animal versus a bunch of other animals. And Archaeopteryx popped out near some of the diving birds, but it also was pretty close to the roadrunner. Hmm. So they're proposing that maybe it's more like a roadrunner, which is also obviously evolved from a flying ancestor, but doesn't really fly much anymore. But roadrunners can fly a little bit. I've seen it with Wile E. Coyote in the roadrunner. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So maybe Archaeopteryx should be considered a running, island-dwelling, small-game predator is how they describe it, because roadrunners are basically that, except that they don't live on an island. This would mean, though, that maybe there was an earlier Archaeopteryx relative that could fly really well and made it to the island where Archaeopteryx lived that we just haven't found yet. So in a weird way, if we solve this puzzle of whether or not Archaeopteryx was losing flight or gaining flight, if it's losing flight, that pushes the earliest known evolution of dinosaur flight back farther because something had to evolve it in order to get to this becoming flightless Archaeopteryx. There are also some really good questions asked in the Q&A part about this, which is basically the biggest one is, what's the function for those Archaeopteryx wings if it's not flying? And basically, there's a whole bunch of options. Wings are pretty useful, even if they're not big enough to give you sustained flight. Mm -hmm. So one of them is wing-assisted incline running. That's something that we see modern baby birds do pretty often. Basically, they can run up a steeper incline by using their wings to flap a little bit. So say they're on a branch of a tree and a predator is coming up after them, they can sneak up higher quickly by using their wings to flap up. (laughs) They can also be helpful for gust stabilization. So say you're perched on a tree and a, a big gust of wind blows by, you can use the wings to sort of stabilize. You can also use them to stabilize on top of prey. So this has been proposed as sort of a dromaeosaurid. You can think of like, Deinonychus on the back of Tenontosaurus digging claws in. If they had some wings to stabilize themselves, they might be able to balance a little bit better while they're poking with their feet. Mm -hmm. Nothing about brooding, huh? 
I think it it might have been mentioned, but yeah, you can brood pretty well without wings too, especially for a light bird like this. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have to rely on on wings. But it was really funny too because Habib said that he was working at a zoo and it was really hard to catch the flightless birds when they needed to, you know, move them for whatever reason, if they're working on an exhibit or something. And the flightless birds, he said, were basically in parkour mode (laughs) (laughs) because they could just run up everything basically using their wing-assisted incline running. They could also drop from basically any height. So if you were chasing them and you're on something up high and you thought you had a corner, they could always just jump off a cliff because they could flutter down gracefully and then you have to go around the long way. How many people did it take? More than one, I'm sure. I don't know. Like, yeah, I'm not sure. He didn't explain how they ultimately caught them. It was just that it was super hard. And then there's also a really funny example, which is the grebes at Lake Titicaca in South America escape humans by running across water using their wings to help. (laughs) I've had dreams similar to that. Were you the bird or the person chasing? Uh, Something like a bird. I don't remember what was chasing me. But you could fly and half fly and run on water. Yeah. That was pretty handy. I've never had a dream anything like that. But it was a good example of one of the many ways that wings are helpful, even if you can't get to full-on sustained flight. It makes sense that Habib does a lot of studies on flight. If that name sounds familiar, we did interview him back in episode 157, where I'm sure he was talking about that. Yeah, I think we might have talked a little bit about dragon flight. Mm -hmm. He does some work with movie studios on that. So on the other end of the spectrum, our next talk was by Birch and Smith. And they were looking at Mononychus or Mononychus, which is the small alvarosaurid with chest claws. Oh, yeah, that weirdo. Basically, the farthest thing you could possibly imagine from having wings. Virtually no, (laughs) no arms at all. Just little tiny claws at chest height and, you know, basically finger length. Super weird. We've we've talked about it before in the different hypotheses on why they had these super weird chest claws. The leading hypothesis seems to be that they were termite eaters, basically using their claws to tear open termite nests. And then, you know, you have to have your face close to the termite nest anyway. So having shorter arms could actually be an advantage, basically the way that armadillos work these days. Although I still really like the idea of the chest bumping eggs to crack them open, (laughs) even though there isn't a ton of scientific support for that. Mm -hmm. There was one paper that suggested it. So these researchers decided to look at the musculature of the forelimb from the shoulder all the way through the limb to the claw, which really isn't that far. But (laughs) it's important to see if the muscles look like they would be useful for digging at termites or if they might have been useful for something else. And... Long story short, the conclusion is the upper arm and shoulder probably had larger muscles than some of its close relatives, and there were also larger muscle attachment points around the elbow, including basically the biceps, so it had some like curl, yank sort of power to its arms. Oh, interesting. And so they think those muscles would have made Mononychus better at both digging and scratching, if you imagine using a claw in sort of that back and forth direction. Both of those things, both digging and scratching, are useful when you're foraging for insects. So not scratching itself. No, more like scratching through like a a log or something, like breaking away pieces to get at something. 
We see similar adaptations in the pangolin, which is another thing that forages for insects and has big claws and strong arms. So we might finally have a good answer for why Mononychus had these weird tiny arms. Maybe it was, in fact, for getting at some insects. Mm -hmm. It's nice that we have an answer, but I was kind of hoping it would be something weirder. You might always find a new specimen, a new alvarosaurid that does do something weirder. Yeah. It would be awesome if we found one with gut contents and it just had like a ton of something really specific like clams. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like, oh, it was using those for shucking clams. That's what it was for. (laughs) Moving to a much larger animal with tiny arms. We've got (laughs) T-Rex. Yeah, relatively tiny arms, but still pretty large arms. True. Yeah. Much bigger than our arms. (laughs) There was a poster by Evan Johnson Ransom, who we've talked to before about T-Rex, even made some T-Rex cooing noises. Mm -hmm. But in this case, he's looking at how cranial stresses on tyrannosauroids compare to other theropods, which is a different angle of something we've talked about before on the show. And this talk was his thesis, right, that he just defended and successfully. Congrats, Evan. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. We also watched him defend his thesis, which was much longer format, obviously, than a poster, but he included some audio with this, which was nice as well. So basically what they're looking at is the comparison of skulls between Tyrannosaurus and a bunch of other dinosaurs, and they're all scaled to the same size. So we're not looking at just like raw numbers of how strong was T-Rex bite force versus these other animals or how strong was the skull compared to these other animals. It's really like, are there any unique adaptations to the T-Rex skull which specifically reduce stress while it's biting? That's the question we're trying to answer. We also looked at other Tyrannosaur skulls too and looked for basically if there were weak points on them. Yeah, so it was a comparison between them all once they were scaled. Mm. So the early Tyrannosauroids had thinner, often described as more gracile skulls that weren't capable of dealing with large forces, whereas the later tyrannosauroids exhibited lower stress. In other words, they could handle higher bite forces. But in general, even beyond early allosauroids and early abelosaurids, the early tyrannosauroids were better at handling high forces. So even though they weren't as good as the later tyrannosauroids, They were still doing better than the other early stuff. Makes sense. And then eventually evolved into T-Rex. Yep. Which was the best. It really was. It's the aptly named King Tyrant Lizard. One thing that we saw in the thesis that was just barely touched on too in the poster was that some of the skull ornamentation that we presumed was like for display seemed to possibly reduce the stresses a little bit. Like on Guanlong, the crest down the nose might have helped it bite a little bit harder potentially, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. I want to see more on that. We also saw a great talk from Andre Rowe and others. They were also looking at stresses in tyrannosauroid skulls. It's a popular topic. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, they used a couple different strategies. So they CT scanned some of the skulls And that allows for all sorts of really cool stuff because you can measure the inside density of the bone directly. (laughs) Whereas if you're doing a surface scanning, it's a lot easier to do and you can do it on a larger specimen and a lot more quickly. But you have to sort of infer 
what the inside structure of the bone is like. You just kind of assume that it's solid or at least mostly solid and you use that in your model, but it's not a hundred percent right. If there's any sort of weak points or it's not as solid as you thought it was, then you're not going to get as accurate of results as you would with a CT scan. And they in fact found that there was about 10% higher stress in their surface scanners than there was during the CT model possibly because it couldn't see the internal structure of the bone, which might have helped reinforce things a little bit more than they had originally thought. Mm -hmm. But considering they were only within about 10%, that is pretty close Yeah, and probably good enough to compare these individuals relative to one another. So for future studies, you could use either model and you'd get similar results. Yeah. Although now that I'm looking at the numbers, maybe not all the time (laughs) because... Basically, they ended up with Albertosaurus having 20% more bending stress than a T-Rex with the load applied to the front teeth on both of them, Mm. which it looks like, okay, if you're 10% off, it's still T-Rex is stronger. But Displetosaurus had about 10% more stress than T-Rex, and there you're getting into that sort of margin of error. So it looks like T-Rex's skull was a little bit stronger than Displetosaurus, but it's hard to say just how much, you know, depending if you mix these techniques, it might be hard to compare directly. They also use some fancy tricks to digitally fix the distortion. Basically, they had a skull and it was like smushed on one side. So they took the uh, the good half and then mirror imaged it over and then used that. And then after that, obviously adding the muscles and applying the force digitally to the teeth to see how that affected the skull. So again, reconfirming that T-Rex, very strong bite force, and then maybe second, Displetosaurus, and then third, Albertosaurus, at least out of these these ones that were tested. So you can rank which dinosaurs to avoid if you somehow traveled back in time and came across them. Sure. That's (laughs) definitely the reason they did this research. (laughs) (laughs) Sticking with the theropods... Up next, we've got a talk from Dominic DeMore and others, and they were talking about how teeth, specifically in theropods, are usually studied based on measurements like curvature, denical size, also known as serration size and spacing, also the width of the tooth, the length of the tooth, all that kind of stuff. But there's not a lot looking at the sort of quantity or type of heterodonty going on in these animals. So really, How are the different types of teeth in the mouth different from one another? How different are they really? Like as adults or how it changes over time? Within one individual. Okay. So we'll talk about how like in the premaxilla, they've got this type of tooth. And then later, farther back in the mouth, they have a different style of tooth or that they're just different in general. So it's a heterodont. Okay. But sort of the degree of heterodont and what is causing that heterodont mouth is not often looked at. So basically, in this case, we're looking at how in most theropods, the teeth are biggest near the middle of the mouth. So if you think of that classic T-Rex mouth, and you see just like in a crocodile, about like five, six teeth back on the side, you've got this really big tooth sticking down. And then as you go forward in front of that, they get a little bit smaller. And as you go backwards towards the throat, they also get smaller. So they sort of increase in size as you get to this middle near the front point in the mouth. Hmm. So that's weird, but there is one possible explanation for it. And it could be that 
those teeth are different lengths based on their position relative to the hinge at the back of the jaw. So it's simply a biomechanical pressure for them to change size and not that the teeth in the front and the back and the middle are doing completely different things. Maybe they're doing similar things, but it's just the way that the jaw moves pressuring the teeth in like an evolutionary type of pressure Interesting. to change shape and size. So basically what they found, if all of the teeth are the same height, starting from the very tip all the way to the back, the teeth that are farthest back are going to hit the object first. So if you imagine you've got a T-Rex and you put like a piece of plywood <laughs> into its mouth or mm. something. Yum. Yeah. <laughs> and it closes its mouth. The back teeth hit first because that's like where the hinge is narrowest, right? And then as it bites farther down, so say it's back teeth puncture through that piece of plywood, then the next farthest back teeth hit and so on and so forth all the way until you get to the very front teeth are the last ones to hit because that gap is the biggest when the mouth is open and then it has the farthest to close before it hits that piece of plywood, for example. At the same time, as more teeth hit that, say, piece of plywood, the teeth in the back are rotating through the piece of plywood. So if you imagine, you know, the mouth is closing farther and farther and farther, the tooth can't just stick in the same angle the whole time because the jaws are fixed in place. Mm -hmm. If it was going to stay the same angle, the bottom jaw would have to like shift forward or the top jaw would have to shift in order to meet that angle change. So there is this curvature pressure on it too, which is interesting because their teeth are in fact curved. So we can look at that too. But sticking to the length just for now, if you designed a jaw that would match all the teeth hitting at the same time. You'd have the shortest teeth in the back and they would get progressively longer all the way up to the front. So you'd expect to have the very longest teeth way in the front. But it is possible that those front teeth are doing something slightly different. So maybe they're a little more, they're a little smaller because they're for like stripping flesh off of something. Mm. So they need to be smaller and closer together for that. And that those teeth that are just a little bit farther back are the biggest because they're doing the same function as sort of the back two-thirds of the mouth. So they've evolved teeth to be as efficient as possible. Yeah, for biting, so that they're all sort of engaging in the bite at the same time, potentially. But when they did their model, so they did a simple model looking at the size and shape of the teeth, and what it, they found is that it underestimated the curvature of the teeth, but more or less at like a constant underestimate. So all of the teeth we're just like a little bit less curved than we would expect based on a model of sort of how they rotate through something while they're biting. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that theropods have more curve to their teeth because they're using a puncture and pull strategy, you know, where they like clamp on to a piece of meat and then yank their neck back. And then they sort of pull at the meat using their teeth, obviously, or what grip, what are gripping it. So mm -hmm. you want the teeth to be more curved so that they get a better bite into it. And then as you pull back to it, it's less likely to get ripped out or, you know, you get a better slice through it as well doing mm. that angle. The teeth meat slicers. Yep. <laughs> they also think that based on the curvature changing as the teeth go forward, it might mean that some theropods at least are effectively homodonts and not heterodonts. What does that mean? Basically, you know, homodont meaning the same tooth throughout the whole jaw. Mm. And that really the teeth are performing the same function, but it's just the geometry of the jaw that's affecting their size and shape. Hmm. It's pretty interesting. It is. Because I've always looked at the T-Rex jaw and thought, why, why does it have those big teeth in the position it does? Why do they get smaller in the front and the back? So 
maybe we've got an answer to that. Just what are those serrated bananas doing? Yeah. Next up was a talk by John Fortner and others, and they were talking about how the intramandibular joint functions. The intramandibular joint, so mandible is the fancy word for a jaw, and intra is within, so this is the joint within the jaw, because dinosaurs actually have a joint in their jaw, which is pretty weird. Mm -hmm. In T-Rex, it's shortly behind the teeth. So if you ever look at a T-Rex jaw up close, you'll see just like a squiggly, what looks like where the jaw, the jawbone's basically broken, but it's actually there in life too. It in was all there of on them. purpose. Yeah. So there's, there's an actual joint there. And it's a potential weak spot, obviously, especially for something like T-Rex that's biting really high forces. And so the authors wanted to see if the shape of that IMJ, intramandibular joint, might help us understand their feeding behavior. So they took a lot of measurements from fossils and casts. They looked at the IMJ orientation, and it didn't seem to correlate with the shape of the jaw, which is a little bit surprising. Mm -hmm. But one interesting takeaway is that based on the shape of the IMJ, T-Rex did need to bite bilaterally, meaning across both the right and left side of the jaw at once. So my plywood metaphor, if they only had plywood on like half of the mouth, on like the right side, for example, it might break its jaw because it would put a bunch of force on one side and not the other side, and it could strain that joint on half of the jaw, which would obviously be a big problem. The IMJ also means that if they twisted their jaw too much while biting, they could dislocate their jaw at the IMJ, which is basically like breaking the jaw. But fortunately for T-Rex, it's not particularly a weak point because they bite down you know, straight down. And we think even if they do a puncture and pull style of biting, all that force is aligned with the strongest angle of the IMJ. So as long as they're not twisting their jaw, like turning their head from side to side, sort of like a dog (laughs) does when they're like tugging on something, a lot of times they shake their head back and forth. If a T-Rex tried to do something like that, it would put a lot of strain on the IMJ because their jaw is a lot deeper than it is wide. Hmm. So the IMJ is the weakest in that side-to-side motion. So they really would have had to focus on that up and down, sort of like normal bite strategy, not like an alligator like spinning around or a dog shaking its head or anything like that. That could have been trouble. The capital T. Yep. (laughs) So this next paper is going to help answer the question of how Tyrannosaur teeth changed as they aged, like you were asking about when I was talking about heterodonts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there was a talk by Francois Therrien, and they were looking at Albertosaurus and Gorgosaurus, also known as the Albertosaurines, and how as they got older, their bites and their jaws changed, also known as an ontogenetic niche shift, if you want to know the fancy paleontologist terminology for it. (laughs) So they used dentaries from different aged individuals, and they used something called beam theory, which is basically how the cross-section of the jaw resists bending in horizontal and vertical directions. Like we were talking about with the IMJ, you could use beam theory, or you can use a fancier modeling program if you want. They found 12 specimens of Albertosaurus and 23 specimens of Gorgosaurus just in the Royal Tyrell collections to work from. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Plus, they had casts from a few Displetosaurus and T-Rex to use, and they were stuck with just that sample because of COVID. They were in their own museum, but that's quite a sample to work from. 
what they found was that the jaws were stronger at the front teeth than the middle teeth at all ages of albertosaurines. And what that means is, based on modern animals, they probably used their front of their mouth to bite and seize prey rather than bite and release or having a slashing bite. Hmm. They also found that the jaws are stronger in the vertical than the horizontal plane at all ages. So like I was talking about with the IMJ, you know, not shaking the head or doing anything like that. It appears to be consistent throughout ages with these Albertosaurines. That also means that they probably use their jaws to, you know, bite and seize prey, catch prey at all ages too, that there wasn't a major change in their feeding style or like what, you know, it might have been the size of the prey they were catching, but they were doing it sort of the same way, we think, based on their jaws. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, for example, even though they were a little bit lankier proportionally, they probably weren't using their hands or feet at a younger age to help catch prey. Mm-hmm. Teeth first, always. Yeah. One thing that did change, though, is they found that the teeth got a lot thicker as the Albertosaurians grew up. And roughly, once the Albertosaurian jaws past the two foot or about 60 centimeter long threshold, their jaws started getting stronger rapidly. So they started getting more robust and a little bit less thin. This is also where they diverge from other dinosaurs like Carcharodontosaurids. I think we talked about that before, how like the small juvenile T-Rex, they have like a similar sort of bite force and ecological niche probably as a lot of other meat-eating dinosaurs, but then once they get to the bigger sizes, like three feet, four feet, five feet of skull length, their bite forces go through the roof and they look way different than a lot of the other dinosaurs. This means that the juveniles likely shifted to larger prey when they were around 11 years old and about five and a half meters or 18 feet long body size. That, that's what corresponds to that two-foot jaw length. At this point, their skulls were about two-thirds of their adult size. As an adult, Albertosaurians only had about a one-meter or three-foot-long skull, not as big as T-Rex. It was like four or five feet. <laughs> but their bite force was only about 10 to 15% the maximum adult bite force when it was at two feet versus that three-foot. So there was a lot of extra reinforcement that came in. The skull got much more robust in that last foot of length growing. Yeah. Think of the prey they could go after then. Yeah, a lot of things, that's for sure. And it's interesting too, I always think when we're looking at this, how T-Rex grew as it aged, and it's basically like around the same time that humans go through their growth spurt, like in the early teens, mm -hmm. although theirs lasted longer and obviously they achieved much larger sizes, but there are some similarities there. In the talk too, they also mentioned the amazing Gorgosaurus that's, I, I forget what it was, like 80% complete or something, super complete skeleton. And that's the one that we used as the basis for our design on one of our shirts with the orange circle on it. I think that's the one they got a Guinness World Record for, too. Yeah, it's so cool. One of their Guinness World Records. <laughs> yeah, what, what was it, like five? Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was also a question in the networking session, which I thought was interesting, tying the two papers together. Someone asked if they added the IMJ to the model, rather than doing just a simple beam theory model, would that change the results? And basically, you could do it with FEA, but they were saying most likely the muscles would stabilize the joint, and that if as long as they're biting and not shaking their head, 
then it probably would have come up with similar results. Can you remind me what FEA is? It stands for finite element analysis. It's a like computer simulation to see how things react to forces. Mm. So usually it's like an engineering thing, like you design a building, then you're like, with an earthquake, is it going to fall down sort of thing? But in paleontology recently, they've started to use it on JAWS and all sorts of fun applications like that to see, for example, you could prove that a sauropod leg is in fact strong enough to hold up the weight (laughs) of a sauropod and they don't need to live in a lake. (laughs) Or that a T-Rex can bite with a certain amount of force or whether or not a pachycephalosaurid taking a hit on the top of its dome would break its neck. All that kind of stuff you can do with FEA. It's always based on assumptions since we can't see the whole animal fleshed out. Sure. But... That's the best we can do with dinosaurs. Yep. Sticking with the tyrannosaurs, the next talk was by Pasha von Beyert, which was really cool. It was sort of a continuation of their previous work looking at the walking and running gates of a T-Rex. So I don't know if you remember, but there was a paper, I think it was this year, and it was about the tail of T-Rex. And when you designed it or modeled it, as like a five-segmented tail rather than a rigid tail. You could find this periodic swinging motion to the tail and how that, if it bounced at the right rate back and forth, that would help with T-Rex walking. And you might be able to use that natural frequency of the tail bouncing to see what sort of steps. Do you remember that paper? Yeah. It basically found that T-Rex, if its tail was bouncing the way that they modeled it, would have walked around the same speed as us if it was just in the lowest energy state, which Mm -hmm. is the speed that animals walk at most of the time. So this new paper wasn't just the tail. They included a whole bunch of muscles from the tail and the legs to look at how the muscles would have coordinated overall and try to get a more complete picture of what it would have looked like as it was walking, but more importantly, as it was running to see sort of what the maximum speed based on the stresses on the bones and all that kind of stuff would have. So basically like a finite element analysis, but even fancier because now we've got things in motion (laughs) and we're looking at how muscles are interacting within a model. They started with a digital model of Trix, one of the T-Rex specimens that's in Europe, Mm -hmm. and they used some other specimens to fill in gaps like Sue for the feet, for example, because we don't have any T-Rex individual that has all of the bones. Yet. (laughs) Yeah. I'm always hopeful. It'd be hard to find for an adult, maybe for a smaller one we could. After scaling everything to fit tricks, it's about 11 meters or 36 feet long and about 3.1 meters or 10 feet high at the hip, which is on the upper end of T-Rex. They can get up to about 40, 41 feet, but it's still a full-size adult, essentially. They estimated the mass based on minimum convex hull and got an estimate of 8 tons, which is pretty typical of what we see for adult T-Rex estimates. Super heavy, obviously, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's useful for these calculations because the weight of the animal is what's putting the pressure on those joints as it's moving. They added in hip, knee, ankle, and tail joints, and they also added 22 muscles in the legs, hips, and tail. All of those are coordinated when they're walking. It's a lot more complicated than our body because we don't have the tail helping us lift our leg and it doesn't swing around or anything like that. But they are still bipedal, so there's some similarities still. The coolest thing I thought was they talked about how Sellers et al. used 3,000 hours on a supercomputer using a similar type of model. Yeah, it's a lot of time to find that 
T-Rex was walking around six meters per second or 13 miles per hour as a stress-limited speed for large theropods. But what von Bayer did is they used a fancy new algorithm called direct collocation, which starts from basically a guest outcome value, so in this case, a coordination pattern, and then the algorithm optimizes with less constraints. So <laughs> the example was, for example, you can have it optimized without the laws of physics, and it's, it shows like a T-Rex twiddling its arms and toes and like floating across the screen <laughs> that'd be fun <laughs> but like it's it's one potential solution obviously it's not a very good one but right. you can use that and then some other potential motions of legs and then you can sort of narrow in quicker than if you make you force the computer to apply the laws of physics every single time it makes it a much more time-consuming method. So it took a lot less than 3,000 hours. Yeah, so they got it in three hours, and that was <laughs> on a home computer. Wow. So one one-thousandth of the time. That's and impressive. A, yeah. Just want to clarify, guest, that's in, as in estimated, not be our guest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like an estimate for what the, the best guess of what the outcome will be. So in the end, they found that it had a maximum speed of nine meters per second or 20 miles per hour. Much faster in how they found it and the results. Yes, but so even though I said it's much faster and it's really impressive that they got these results, that doesn't have a stress constraint. Oh, okay. So it's possible that if it was going 20 miles an hour, it might be like shattering its metatarsal or something. Ooh, So <laughs> that's not ideal. No. So basically, they were saying if you add that stress constraint into it, it's likely to drop the maximum speed, and it might be about the same as that previous estimate of 6 meters per second or 13 miles per hour. But it was a really cool example of how to use this new technology, and it also came up with the minimal effort or typical speed of 1.5 meters per second or 3.4 miles per hour which is about the same as just looking at the tail alone like they looked at before. And again, about the same as humans walking. So if you were, if you had a pet T-Rex and you were going to walk it around the block, you would just walk around your speed and be perfectly content with that. That's where your mind went. Mine <laughs> went to, oh no, they can walk the same speed at us. They can definitely outrun us. No, because I, I mean, the maximum speed of about 13 miles an hour, people can run faster than 13 miles an hour for a short stretch. Is it a long enough short stretch, though? Well, if you could do a quarter mile in a minute, that's mm. 15 miles an hour for a full quarter mile. I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a problem. I think the agility is what you'd have to rely on, or more likely squeezing into a small space. Right, and that, hiding. Yeah, that it can't jam its face into, and hopefully you're not a big enough prize that it wants to wait for you. But that's nice. Your mind went to pet. Yeah, because that's what we really all want. Dinosaurs as pets. <laughs> Some of us already have them. I don't, but... Right. You mean birds? Yeah. <laughs> and last but not least in our biomechanics talks, we had a talk by Kristen Vogel, and it's a sauropod paper. Excellent. <laughs> Way to end on a high note. Exactly. It was actually really interesting. So they were looking at the... <laughs> actually, of course it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the sauropod papers are usually interesting, but not always. <laughs> so they were looking at the articular cartilage in the elbow of dreadnoughtus. In other words, the cartilage at the ends of the bones meeting at the elbow. Hmm. 
Most models don't include articular cartilage. For example, the model we were just talking about about T-Rex did not have articular cartilage in it, but it's super important because archosaurs often have thicker articular cartilage than mammals, so we expect that dinosaurs might have had more cartilage at their joints than we do, and cartilage can really drastically affect the range of motion of a joint. Hmm. Unfortunately, cartilage isn't preserved in the fossil record, which is why it usually isn't included in models because we don't know what to include. Right. But they decided with Dreadnoughtus, we have a complete elbow and we have a shoulder preserved as well so we can get a decent idea of the muscle attachment points. And then they dissected alligators and chickens to look at their elbow cartilage and ligaments because, again, if you take both crocodilians and birds... Those are the only living descendants of archosaurs, which dinosaurs are also in the group with. So hopefully, if they have something in common, you can apply that same common trait to dinosaurs. And what they found is that there's this ball of cartilage at the elbow. And being that Dreadnoughtus was a juvenile, it might have had more cartilage than an adult. That's another trait that archosaurs seem to have. And then they tested adding varying levels of cartilage to the ulna, humerus, and radius. And what they found is that in order for the bones to articulate properly really at all in the simulations, because they don't meet together all that well, and joints need to have like a constant contact for them to work. They can't just be dislocating all over the place. They need that cartilage there to keep contact. What they found is that the humerus needs a big ball of cartilage on the end of it. And that ball is sort of like what the rest of the joint rotates around. And that ball, in fact, of cartilage is seen on chickens and alligators. So then it makes sense. Yeah. So the simulations and the modern analogs both look best when we put this big old ball of cartilage on the end of the humerus. So from the the upper arm bone down to the lower two arm bones, and then everything has a nice, neat place to rotate around. Well, good. Something to keep in mind. Yeah. So in future models, maybe we'll get these cartilage included, and it can increase the range of motion. It might also have an impact on the amount of stress on the joints and bones, too. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. 
You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The next SVP session we want to cover is the Taphonomy, Paleo Environments, and Stratigraphy session. Nice. I love Taphonomy. Yeah. And there was a talk by... Owen Wolf, who worked on this paper with others, uh, the taphonomy and pathology of death pose in archosaurs. Mm. So again, archosaurs aren't just dinosaurs, but they started with talking about infectious diseases and wild birds, dinosaurs, can have <laughs> pathognomonic postures where they'll die in these odd postures like the wing splayed or like the death pose. Mm. And that could be due to neurologic problems or different diseases. So there's some consistency where if it dies of a specific disease, it has like a similar sort of pose? Maybe. So they were looking at dinosaur death poses and the taphonomy, the death posture of the specimen, and whether or not that was something that was a neurologic problem. You know, what was it something related to disease? I said, why not focus on the disease? Was this, is this the typical theropod death pose where they have their head sort of splayed way back and then their tail curled up over the back too so that their head and their tail are sort of meeting in the middle like some sort of crazy yoga pose? Yeah, or at least close to it, yeah. So they looked at different mass death sites that had been studied in the past that were due to botulism or drowning or drought or death pose from taphonomy, just the way it kind of got moved around while it was being fossilized. You can kind of see these poses in these mass death spots, but individual deaths are harder to find. There's been some hypotheses, some interesting ones, about what might have caused an individual dinosaur death. Trichomonosis, air sacculitis, which is a, an inflammatory condition of air sacs that's been studied in sauropods. Poor sauropods. There's also multiple infections or degenerative disease and blood parasites. And they've hypothesized that some death postures have been preserved, but not yet noted due to a lack of taphonomic record. So, you know, there's death poses due to disease, but we just haven't studied them yet. Hmm. I'm intrigued with how they know that something was caused by an inflammation of an air sac or (laughs) other specific things. They must be seeing some sort of invasion into the skeleton in specific areas that makes them think that was the cause of death. Maybe some bone growth. Yeah. Yeah. So they looked for this study at a number of specimens, including archosaurs. For example, they looked at the holotype of Sinoteras dongai, and they looked at the geology, articulation, element orientation, taphonomic assessment. They found that its position was due to a lot of stuff, uh, in situ disarticulation, for example, but there was no evidence of its position from 
a specific cause of death. Hmm. Now, they ended up looking at 27 specimens, three pterosaurs, 23 fossil birds, one non-avian dinosaur, and they found that all these specimens had some kind of modification. They found that three of those specimens were likely influenced by pathology, the way their posture was. Oh, interesting. So that's not a a whole lot because that's three out of 20-something? 27, yeah. Okay, so that's like almost one in 10 only. So one example is Archaeopteryx. The head was stretched back towards the neck in the apisotonus posture, but the wing positioning was unusual. It had a wing down type, which was a little bit different. And they found that, yeah, that could be due to the carcass sinking and then not being disturbed before it was buried. Oh, interesting. If you're looking at it from taphonomy. But it could also be from something pathological. There's this thing called forelimb paralysis that's seen in modern birds. It happens with birds with botulism where they're paralyzed, but the wings are still moving the bird forward. So then they get into a a weird pose. Hmm. They also found three bird fossil specimens with flexed pedal digits. Also known as toes. Yeah. Uh, That's compared to having relaxed toes of the other specimens that they looked at. So they're saying, well, it doesn't look like it was in some kind of death throes. Maybe there was some form of contraction to make them flexed. Another example was another Archaeopteryx with a hyperflexed upward tail and its neck bowing forward, its head back, and its partially extended wings. And that's hard to explain taphonomically. It's similar to postures found with specimens that had encephalitis. Oh, yeah. Encephalitis is like brain swelling. Yeah. So it's like writhing in pain from brain swelling? Yeah. Ugh. Not a great way to go. So, uh, I mean, like you said, about 10% of their sample showed that there was probably some kind of pathology that led to their death pose, to how, yeah, how they looked after they died. And so it's good to know when you're studying how the specimens are prepared because that makes a difference in how you interpret them. And it's also helpful to look at extant modern living animals and their death postures, and then you can kind of see some similarities. Yeah, especially I could see how comparing something like Archaeopteryx or early birds to modern birds, Mm -hmm. you could probably find some connections. Then there was a poster by Caleb Brown about an immature Centrosaurus specimen. So this was just a kind of a short one to talk about what they found and also why it's interesting. And it described that keratinized epidermal structures in dinosaurs. Is this about how we? some people have been proposing that ceratopsians had that big keratin covering on their frills? This is about keratin in different dinosaur findings and how it's getting more common. Like in Ornithischia, we've seen scaly skin. We've seen bristles and filaments in, in like Cetacosauridae, Heterodontosauridae. And keratinous osteoderm scales in Ankylosauria, hooves in Hadrosauridae and Ankylosauria, and then Ceratopsidae skulls have several bony features that are likely capped by these robust keratinized tissues. Oh, okay. So not the whole frill, probably things more like the horns. Yeah, like on the nasal horn or on the beaks, the jugal horns, the frill horns, sheaths. But even though it's likely that they had these structures and lots of fossils of ceratopsians have been found, direct evidence of these keratin 
preservation is rare to non-existent. Hmm. So in 2019, they found a small subadult centrosaurus, or a parietal of it, from a dinosaur park formation in Alberta, and they found these eight flat, semi-circular to crescent-like structures under it. And they think that those structures are keratinous coverings that go along the frill. Oh, cool. That's interesting. When I think about keratin covering on ceratopsians, I'm always thinking about the big fancy horns that everybody thinks of, like the three horns on Triceratops, not the little ones on the edge of the frill on some of the other dinosaurs. Next, there were some really cool talks from the quantitative paleontological methods session. And I'll start with the one by Kyla Bagues, who had a talk and, and worked with others on telling the difference between the pathologies that you see in birds and crocodiles and dinosaurs that are bone pathologies from medullary bone. Hmm. Yeah, we've talked about medullary bone before. Right. That's that avian reproductive tissue. Mm-hmm. And the inside of the bones. So they tested this new approach to what's called clumped isotope thermometry because it's really hard to diagnose bone pathology. You know, there's no medical records for these dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, there's no soft tissue context or, you know, there's not really soft tissue. The fossils are often fragmentary and they can be distorted from taphonomy and fossilization. Also, just fossils in general are pretty rare. So one example that they said is Sue the T-Rex. There's a lot of bone pathologies that have been described and thought to be bacterial infection or bite marks or parasitic infection. And the left fibula was thought to have a fracture, but then later CT imaging found that it was likely to be a bone infection. So it's really hard to know what specifically happened. Mm. And just a quick recap on medullary bone. It was first identified in the hind limb of a T-Rex in 2005. And since then, there's been debate on whether female non-avian dinosaurs produce medullary bone? And if so, how can that help us understand how dinosaurs reproduced? Medullary bone-like tissue has also been tentatively identified in pterosaurs, in addition to non-avian dinosaurs, and extinct birds, a species that lived together that spanned over 150 million years. So it's in a lot of different species, potentially. But medullary bone and bone pathologies, they have some similar characteristics. They're, quote, disorganized, highly vascular, woven-like bone tissue that is rapidly deposited only on basically the surface. Mm -hmm. Now, research on extant species, species that are living today, have suggested that there are certain types of pathology that form under localized temperature increases in the body. So the temperature doesn't increase in the whole body, just that one area where there's the pathology. And that's different from some metabolic and non-inflammatory degenerative diseases, which they're not associated with a localized area where the temperature increases. So there's an example of two pathologies in Falcarius. The left humerus of a specimen probably had chronic osteomyelitis, and the right metatarsus probably had a traumatic fracture. Now these are infectious and inflammatory processes, so they probably had a higher temperature in these areas. Hmm. And one way that you can detect if there was a higher temperature is using stable and clump isotope paleothermometry. You detect the temperature variations in the isotopic fingerprint of the bone. So you're mm -hmm. looking at different parts of the bone. 
That's the carbon-13 and oxygen-18 mm-hmm. ratio, the paleothermometer. Exactly. So in other words, if you see that it had an elevated temperature in that part of the bone relative to other parts of the bone, you'd know it was deposited while it was at a higher body temperature and potentially while it was infected and not from medullary bone. Exactly. Because with medullary bone, that forms in mature birds and then their whole body temperature increases during Mm -hmm. their egg-laying cycle. Oh, I didn't realize that their body temperature increases during the egg-laying cycle. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other wrinkle. So (laughs) then this only works if the pathology only increases the body temperature in that spot. If it's like us, and you know, sometimes we get a fever and it changes our whole body temperature when you have a bone infection potentially, Mm -hmm. then you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Yes. So they're saying they do need to do more testing and analysis, but their first test was promising and their first test was on the right humerus of a deceased blue heron. Well, yeah, that sounds promising. I mean, I guess if you're seeing a difference in that paleothermometer, you'd only expect it if they had an infection that had a local temperature rise, because if they had a whole body temperature rise or if they were laying eggs with a whole body temperature rise, then... You might not be able to tell the difference between those two, Mm -hmm. but you should be able to tell a difference if there is a local temperature rise from an infection. Yeah. So then that can make you more certain that whether or not it was some kind of pathology versus reproductive related. Yeah. I guess that makes it hard, though, to show that something definitely was medullary because it could also be a full body fever. You could show it wasn't medullary by seeing that there's a local change but it's hard to show like proof positive that it is medullary bone because it could just be uh they didn't overall body temperature increase they didn't talk about that they were mostly kind of ruling out okay things that we might think are medullary could be pathologies yeah it makes sense too because you like you were talking about with sue there's tons of other pathologies so why wouldn't this thing that looks like medullary bone just be another on the long list of pathologies that's interesting it'll be interesting to see if any of the medullary bone stands up to this Yeah, it's just nice that you have more tools and processes to help rule things out. Mm -hmm. As long as you have a bunch of bones from a skeleton, you can't do this if you just have one bone. So the next talk was by Josh Hedge, who talked about ornamentation on fossil eggs and how you can classify eggs based on their ornamentation. Uh, And ornamentation is like the patterns on the surface. They've got isolated nodes and a dense network of interconnected lines bumps and ridges basically exactly there's variations within the taxa for eggs and even within one clutch or even in a single egg can have a lot of different types of ornamentation turns out that's complicated and currently the way it's classified is a bit subjective so what they did was they proposed a quantitative approach Again, we're in the quantitative talks <laughs> <laughs> to measure egg ornamentation that's based on complexity, relief, and orientation. And they compared fossil elongatuthalid eggs with emu eggs. Hmm. They scanned them both and then they compared them. And they found that these fossilized eggs were more complex than emu eggs. Remember the proposal that the complexity, like the bumps on it, might have to do with like the soil conditions and things like that. Like if it's more acid, then they need these bumps to help neutralize it so it doesn't eat away at the egg and things like that. Yeah, that makes it very difficult. So they're suggesting that going forward, they combine all their metrics with qualitative, 
you know, the existing categories to better classify egg ornamentation. Yeah. I think a lot of the microscopic stuff is super helpful with eggs too. Mm -hmm. But you have to do some histology and damage destructive testing on the eggshells to get that. This next talk was by Thomas Buskiewski. And the name of the talk was really fun. It was, oh, the map is upside down. (laughs) And it was about why it's important to standardize and communicate your mapping procedures when you're (laughs) digging at quarries. Because if you're looking at the map upside down, you might misinterpret things. Well, there's, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Or just you do a lot of extra work. So they worked at the Migat Moore Quarry in the Morris Information where there are thousands of identifiable specimens that have been found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked about that quarry. It's a good one. They get a lot of help from citizen scientists. So you can imagine you want good documentation on everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. But there's challenges. Like the quarry is not 100% flat. They had old maps that were not labeled correctly. And the years of the maps aren't always labeled. And the grids aren't always labeled. So things that were found, you don't know exactly what year it was found or where exactly it was found. The bones are sometimes above or below where you're standing. Also, the grid access. Some of the old maps didn't map to true north. So it got confusing. Mm. Some of the maps were upside down, potentially. I think that's the not mapping to true north aspect. Oh, I gotcha. So then the new maps, they were told to map to true north. So it turns out the bones are farther or look farther away in some maps, some of the old maps versus the new maps. Anyway, it's it's all difficult because you have a lot of people there. They're multitasking. There's 10 to 15 visitors at a time with three paleontologists, which is really helpful. But uh, in terms of, you know, you have to make sure you're communicating really well what's been mapped, what hasn't. And then you have different volunteers every year and different paleontologists sometimes too. So you have to communicate with people in a way that when they come back next or when the new people come next year, they know what's been done and what to do next. Mm, Yeah. So they were able to standardize their maps and they made it easier to label their grid markers using grid squares and other tools. And they used tape measures. I guess not all the maps had that. And the main thing was they created this procedure book so people can follow along year to year and have something to reference. And they said, well, you know, each query is different. This might not work well for smaller queries or more remote queries, but for this particular one, it's good. They have some guidance on their maps. <laughs> Was this the one that I overheard someone say part of the reason they've taken so many specimens is because they have people out there and they're like, don't you want to collect this thing I found or this thing my kid found? <laughs> oh, I don't know if that was this specific one. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> They're like, we have a great sample from this quarry. It's because we get peer pressured by the people collecting it to collect everything. <laughs> it's important to have a good map. The last talk I want to share from the session is from Alexander Hall that talked about using neutron imaging for paleontology. Oh, usually we're using electrons. Exactly. There's a lot of benefits to using neutrons, it turns out, because they show some really great contrast between bones and the matrix where it was found, and they show complex features that are internal to the skull. Wow. What are they using? Like, what kind of scanner uses neutrons? It's CT scanners, but I think you have to go to very specific places that have them. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know they had neutron CT scanners. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they mentioned the neutron 
CTs work best for smaller specimens and has to be safe to put the specimen in the path of a neutron source. And when you're working with a CT scanner, you should be talking with the scientists who run the neutron imaging devices. They can provide a lot more information on this. Now, neutrons will make a specimen temporarily radioactive, which can last for hours to weeks. You want to keep that in mind when you're doing your research. (laughs) Yeah, shooting neutrons at things is really dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can ever use a living specimen in a neutron CT scanner then. Yeah, probably not if it makes it radioactive. (laughs) So one example that they did this on was the holotype of the tyrannosauroid, the Beastie Beast. Now, that skull's about one meter or three feet long, and at the time, it was the largest fossil scan with neutron tomography. They combined neutron tomography with high-energy x-rays to get the most information, and the neutron scan showed the endocast of the brain case, and then combined that with the high-energy x-ray that showed the unerupted teeth. So in that case, the x-rays interact with the electrons surrounding the atoms in a specimen. So it sounds like there's a lot of benefits, but then you still want to combine it with other techniques. Cool. Yeah, I didn't know anything about neutron tomography or neutron CT scanning. That's really interesting. I looked into it a little bit while you were talking. I guess it only makes things radioactive if it has specific elements in it, because you need something for the neutron to hit and then cause it to you know, absorb that neutron mm. and then fire it off later in a radioactive way. So it doesn't always make things radioactive, fortunately. Oh. That's good. It sounds like because you have to go to very specific places to work with these scanners that the people you're working with will probably let you know all the details. Yeah. And certain things you probably wouldn't want to put into a neutron scanner because it could be a little bit dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's probably why you have to go to such specific sites with people who specialize in it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just a specialized piece of equipment. Yep. So we'll pick up in our next episode with even more SVP talks. But for now, we've got some other dinosaur news not related to SVP. Because <laughs> we haven't had enough news. We need yeah. more news. <laughs> <laughs> so this next item, a new juvenile hadrosauroid dinosaur has been found in Missouri by Guy Darrow. This one was all over the news. Oh, yes. We, and this one confused us a little bit. We were getting texts from everybody we know. Have you seen this? Have you seen? Have you heard of this? <laughs> <laughs> so... All of the news articles said it was a Parasaurus, and after doing a bit of research, yes, it sounds like it is a Parasaurus, but we were confused because Parasaurus had been referred to Hypsobema, this is Parasaurus Missouriensis, had been referred to Hypsobema Missouriensis in 1979, and in 2004, Hypsobema Missouriensis became the official state dinosaur of Missouri. And if you want to hear more about Hypsobema, it was our Dinosaur of the Day in episode 269. Not specifically the Missouriensis species, because there are a couple of species of Hypsobema. But anyway, this Hypsobema Missouriensis is now back to where, you know, there's talk now of establishing it as Parasaurus Missouriensis again. And 2018, Chase Brownstein wrote a paper about it that said that it's likely that Parasaurus is its own genus because, you know, they were found in different localities. Hypsobema and Parasaurus were found in different areas. And now we've got more material. So that could mean that there's more detailed descriptions coming out. And that the name Parasaurus Missouriensis is preferred heron. And now the state of Missouri also says that their state 
dinosaur is not Hypsobema. It's now back to, or it's changed to Parasaurus. Yeah, it was pretty cool because the Missouri State website literally, with their state symbol of Parasaurus, references the 2018 Brownstein paper and says, based on this paper, it seems like it should be called Parasaurus and not Hypsobema, which is just cool because you, you don't often see governments that are that up on the science and yeah. like updating their their dinosaur fossil names. It's really cool. And they just switched their, their name to match the science from Hypsobema back to Parasaurus. Yeah. So it seems like uh, Parasaurus, the name is back in. So we'll just refer to it as Parasaurus, at least for the species Parasaurus missouriensis from now on. And what's really exciting is that three adult specimens and one juvenile were found at this site. Now, the specific locality isn't being disclosed because they're still digging, but it's known as the, well, I guess informally, Chronister site, because that's where the first Hypsobema missouriensis, now Parasaurus missouriensis fossils were found in 1942. It's also an area with a lot of clay. That's why it's called Chronister? Chronister is the name of the family who owns who owned that land. Oh, gotcha. So if you have a, a white pages, you could probably find where it is. Oh, maybe. <laughs> but not, it sounds like there was a lot of land, so you might not know exactly. Oh, gotcha. And not too many fossils have been found in Missouri, so this is a pretty exciting find, and they're expecting to find more stuff here, and hopefully there's a paper about this later, and maybe that'll even more officially make it Parasaurus. Yeah, it was funny, the... The Wikipedia page, if you go to Hypsobema right now, says that the title is under a suggested change as of about three days before we recorded this episode to Parasaurus. And the discussion on it is basically like, yeah, Jack Horner at et al. basically in 1979 said we should lump these together, but they didn't have a great reason for why. And then nobody really talked about it for a long time because no one really cares about Hypsobema and nobody really cares about Parasaurus. But now that there's this new <laughs> find that has juveniles and it's like a really great find for Parasaurus, it's like, oh, we got to figure this out now. Yeah. <laughs> what should we call it? And it seems like most of the people are saying Parasaurus. Yep. Especially because there was another recommendation by Holtz, I think in 2010, he just more of a throwaway line. It wasn't like a peer-reviewed article focusing on any sort of specific features of Hypsobema and Parasaurus, but he was saying that, yeah, it should probably be Parasaurus. Then Brownstein eight years later is like, yeah, it should be Parasaurus. So certainly seems like we're going that way. And there's a lot of other papers mentioning Parasaurus and they don't use the term Hypsobema. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it, I think it's the, the current consensus. If it was a more well-known, like Hypsobema was a more well-known dinosaur that was getting used more often, we'd probably have a higher standard for stopping using Hypsobema missouriensis, but you know, a couple papers for a, a dinosaur people don't talk about much. Right. It's probably enough. And now there's four specimens of Parasaurus. Yeah. So the juvenile is about 25 to 30 feet long. And one of the, at least one of the adults is going to the Field Museum in Chicago to be studied. And the juvenile is going to be on display at the lab of the St. Genevieve Museum Learning Center starting December 11th. And if you visit, you'll be able to see paleontologists and preparators working on the fossil. And that museum's in Genevieve, Missouri. Oh, cool. I didn't realize that they had a lab there. I, when I saw I saw news articles mentioning that museum, I was like, oh, I got to add it to our museum map. So it's on there now. It wasn't on there before. They did already have some dinosaur stuff in the museum, but I didn't notice a lab. That's cool. I think the lab is going to be fairly new. Nice. It's a one of those combination archaeology and paleontology 
museums. It's mm-hmm. got a lot of stuff. They have like some Jurassic Park stuff in there too. <laughs> things, but there are some like dinosaur eggs and other real dinosaur material you can see in there. Nice. Our last bit of news, this one's just for fun. There's this dinosaur puzzle online that a lot of people have been talking about because they got pretty confused. It's one of those puzzles that's like, which dinosaur is different? And they've got, you see four different stegosaurus in a grid and you're supposed to spot the difference. But nobody can spot the difference. They got the same number of spikes, plates, same ornamentations, all of that. Is it one of those where like one of the legs is an optical illusion and one's like missing a leg or something? It turns out somebody contacted the company because a lot of people have been talking about this online. They contacted the company who made the puzzle and the company said, oh, it was a printing error. <laughs> so there was no difference? Yeah, this is a puzzle that's found in game boxes and dollar stores. <laughs> that's like the ultimate like trolling but, move. Well, so another person said, whoever made this has young kids and is a genius because you can spend hours looking for the difference. <laughs> That's hilarious. And they had a couple of people confirmed, yes, they're they're the same. One person made a drawing where each each drawing was a layer in Photoshop and found them all to be identical, mm-hmm. compared them that way. Another person made a flipbook animation where they photographed each illustration and they also <laughs> found them to be identical. So a lot of clever ways to compare them. Yep. That's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Spots a difference and there's no difference. <laughs> oh man. The more complicated it is, the better at that point, too, because you could just compare all the little individual tiny details. Yeah. It's a it's a kind of a cartoon drawing, so it's not too complicated. Just all the more infuriating that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It took me a while to find the person who said they contacted the company, and I, yeah, I spent some time trying to find the difference myself. <laughs> <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Saltipus, which was a request from Dennis Saltasaurus via our Patreon and Discord. Specifically, the request was a dinosaur from Scotland, and we found one. Well, it's a dinosaur form, but I'll get to that in a little bit. Anyway, thanks for the request. It's funny that their dinosaur name is Saltasaurus, and the one you ended up finding was Saltipus. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> the same. I had the same thought. So Saltipus was a dinosaur form that lived in the late Triassic in what is now Scotland, found in the Lossy Mouth Sandstone Formation. And at first it was thought to be a theropod. So that's how it makes it on this list. (laughs) Because it turned out not to be a theropod? Because for a while it was thought to be a dinosaur. Oh, you said it's a dinosaur form? Yes. But it's a non-dinosaur dinosaur form? Yep. Gotcha. Now, it looks like other early dinosaurs, because a lot of animals did in the Triassic. Mm -hmm. Small, slender, and bipedal. It's been described as cat-sized, 
estimated to be 31 to 39 inches or 80 to 100 centimeters long and weigh about two and a half pounds or one kilogram. That is very light for a, a meter long animal. Yes, I also saw it described as pigeon sized, but oh. there are more people saying it was like a cat. Interesting. Sort of all over the place, pigeon to cat. Might be more about the weight. <laughs> okay. Well, later estimates had it at about 20 inches or 50 centimeters long and about 0.2 pounds or 110 grams. Wow. Yeah. That is, that's a lanky individual. So, yes, it had some very slender elements, too, like its neural spines that were less than one millimeter wide. Holy cow. And it had a very long tail. About half of its body length was the tail. Oh, that helps. Mm -hmm. If you have a really long, skinny tail, it's like technically 20 inches long, but it's really only 10 inches of meat. Yeah. And then it's probably got a neck on the other side. So, yeah, maybe its body is like a pigeon with a really long tail sticking off one end. <laughs> So Saltivus had five fingers on its hands, and the fourth and fifth digits were reduced. They're shorter. It had relatively long legs and relatively short arms. It's possible that it hunted insects and small vertebrates, but no skull or teeth had been found. That's uh, hard to know what it ate then. Yep. The type species is Saltipus elginensis, and it was found around Elgin, Scotland, by William Taylor, who showed it to Friedrich von Huhn in 1909, and Taylor was a well-known fossil collector in the area from 1890 to 1920. So then in 1910, Friedrich von Huhn named it Saltipus elginensis, and the genus name means hopping foot. Hmm. That's a good one. <laughs> well, Huhn thought that Saltipus was a frog-like hopper and said that the, quote, thin and flexible tail could be no hindrance to hopping despite its length. <laughs> It's like a kangaroo rat, but like a kangaroo <laughs> dinosaur morph. Yeah. <laughs> but now most scientists think that Saltipus was a bipedal runner that used its long tail to help balance. That's boring. <laughs> <laughs> now the species name, Elginensis, refers to Elgin. Permian and Triassic fossils have been found in the sandstone deposits in and around the town of Elgin in Scotland, and they're referred to as the Elgin reptiles. Hmm. The holotype of saltipus includes part of the vertebral column, forelimbs, pelvis, and hind limbs. Again, no skull. Well, it's not too bad, though. You got a bunch of limbs. Well, it's not well preserved. Actually, in 2010, according to Michael Benton, who with a team reanalyzed the type specimen of saltipus, quote, the preservation of the saltipus specimen is modest to poor. Okay. So it may have a fair number of bones, but they're in garbage condition. Well, they're preserved as part and counterpart slabs that show the middle part of the skeleton lying belly down. And, quote, the fossil is represented as is typical of specimens from the Lossy Mouth Sandstone Formation by hollows in the medium-grained yellow sandstone. Essentially, all bone material has vanished. Oh, jeez. It's like just a, a cookie mold. Yes. So it's kind of known from the spaces left in the rock where the bones had dissolved. Jeez. Hewnid wrote, quote, most of the bones are changed into brown iron sand. So again, that skeleton, or, you know, what was found, it's the vertebral column, the left forelimb, pelvic region, hind limbs that are sprawled to the sides, and part of the tail that attaches to the body. That includes 24 caudal vertebrae. Some scaly skin may have also been preserved. In 2010, Benton and others used casts, x-rays, and CT scans to re-examine the fossil, and luckily many casts and molds have been made. There was debate about whether saltipus was a dinosaur or a dinosauromorph. 
based on the specimen being incomplete and poorly preserved, which makes sense. There's often debate around poorly preserved specimens. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that Saltipus had two sacral vertebrae, which it used to be we thought that dinosaurs had more than two sacral vertebrae, but then later dinosaurs such as Herrerasaurus were found to have two sacral vertebrae, so became less of a feature to look for. Yeah, and the, the sacral vertebrae are the vertebrae that go in between the hips. Of course, there's some, I don't know if I want to call it debate, but there's been some papers that have suggested Herrerasaurus is not a dinosaur, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Oh. So based on cladistic analysis, Benton and others found Saltipus to be a dinosaur morph because of the reduced fourth and fifth digits on its hands, as well as some other features of the bones. And they found it to, yes, be still a valid taxon because it had enough unique characters. And they found that it might be the closest relative of true dinosaurs. It's a common dinosaur ancestor. Now, in 2017, and maybe our listeners remember this because we covered it in our show, Matthew Barron and others proposed that dinosaurs be divided into the clades Ornithoscolida and Saurischia instead of Ornithischia and Saurischia. I still like that. Yeah, you're not the only one. <laughs> it's just, yeah. There, there are the Noah Ornithischians from the Triassic. It just seems like them being lumped in with the theropods makes a lot of sense. And we interviewed Matt Barron in episode 145 and talked a lot more detail about this. But Ornithischia and Saurischia. Saurischia had the lizard-like hip bones and include theropods and sauropods. And Ornithischia had bird-like hip bones and that included ceratopsians and thyreophorans. And you still see that classification, at least we did when we were visiting museums in person just a couple of years ago. Yeah, and actually pretty much all of the new papers published also still talk about Ornithischia and Saurischia. Nobody really talks about Ornithoscolida. It hasn't been really accepted. Yeah. There have been other papers that tried to replicate it or looked at alternatives, and the basic gist is... None of them are supported any more than any of the others because we don't have enough early dinosaurs to really figure this out. <laughs> so maybe one day. Need <laughs> more fossils. Yeah, especially the early Ornithischians. So Baird and others, they found there were carnivores in both the clades Ornithoscolida and Saurischia, and that the sister taxon to Dinosauria, Silosauridae, mostly included herbivores, and that could mean that the common ancestors of both were omnivores and there were omnivorous ancestors that lived in both the northern and southern hemispheres. Oof. Barron said it might not be possible to know for sure the origin of dinosaurs, but maybe they originated in the northern hemisphere, not in the southern hemisphere, as people had previously thought. And if that's the case, one possibility for an origin of dinosaur could be saltibus. I see. I was wondering why saltipus was getting brought into this whole ornithoscolida debate. Yep. Now, not everyone agreed that Saltipus was a good candidate for a dinosaur common ancestor. You know, lived around the same time, but it's not the best fossils to work with. Well, yeah. I mean, the specimen we have certainly isn't a good candidate, but that doesn't mean the dinosaur or dinosaur morph or dinosaur form when it was alive wasn't a good, likely animal. Yeah. Well, there's another genus, Agnosphytus, that was found in England that was found to be a basal member of Silosauridae, and together with Saltipus, that helps show that dinosaurs and Silosaurids may have originated in Laurasia. In 2018, Barron and Megan Williams re-described the holotype of the late Triassic dinosauriform Casasaurus, 
and found that Caesosaurus, along with Saltipus, were Herrerasaurs and that Herrerasaurs were a sister taxon of dinosaurs and not dinosaurs themselves. Wow. Now we're getting controversial. Yes. Well, yeah, maybe. I don't remember hearing too many people talk about this. I was just thinking Herrerasaurs are always in the the dinosaur family tree. It's almost like taking sauropods out or something. That would be controversial. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this make this would make all the Herrerasaurs non-dinosaurian dinosaur forms. So yeah, taking them out of that. And they wrote that their phylogenetic analysis, quote, along with other recent analyses of early dinosaurs, pulls apart what remains of the traditional group of dinosaurs, collectively termed Sauriscians, into a polyphyletic assemblage and implies that dinosauria should be regarded as composed exclusively of ornithoscolida, ornithischia plus theropoda, and sauropodomorpha, end quote. <laughs> they suggested reviving the name Herrerasauria for the clade, that's any and all taxa in the Herrerasaur lineage, and they also found Silosauridae to be the sister taxon to this clade that contained dinosaurs and Herrerasaurs. Hmm. But then you might as well, I mean, depending on where Silosaurids are, you can put that boundary of dinosaur wherever you want. So, (laughs) like, you can just include both Silosaurids and Herrerasaurs, or you can include neither, whatever. It's pretty arbitrary what a dinosaur, (laughs) where that boundary line actually is. Well, if Saltipus elginensis is a Herrerasaur, it helps show that Herrerasaurs were in Europe in the late Triassic, and then Saltipus would be the first name Herrerasaur from outside the Americas. Other animals that lived around the same time and place as Saltipus include Scleromachlus, which is a small archosauriform with long legs, Brachyrhinodon, a lizard-like reptile, Staganolepis, which is an armored reptile, Hyperodapodon, a beaked lizard-like reptile, and Pseudosugians, which are crocodilian-line archosaurs. Yeah, there was a lot more than just dinosaurs in the Triassic. Mm-hmm. And our fun fact of the day was inspired by all of our talk about T-Rex teeth. So as I was going through these papers, thinking about T-Rex teeth and how they bit and how that compares to modern animals, I was trying to figure out what is the best modern analog to a T-Rex. And specifically, with T-Rex and their big impressive teeth, what actually does have the most impressive teeth of any animal? So... For largest teeth, the largest T-Rex tooth I can find is 15.6 inches long. Wow. Or 39.7 centimeters. It's a ludicrous tooth, but that is mostly root. The erupted length looks like about 4.5 inches or 11 centimeters, which is obviously still huge and way bigger <laughs> than any gonna of our say, teeth. I was going to say, yeah, that's still large. But there are a lot of other animals that are sort of can compete with that. The entire tooth by weight, because I like to go by weight when I'm talking about size of things, was probably very roughly one kilogram or about two pounds. That's using about two grams per cubic centimeter as density and a volume estimate that I did because I couldn't find anyone who was actually giving a weight estimate. You can find people that give you the weight of the fossil, but that's not really the weight of the tooth because they get heavier usually when they fossilize. The longest and heaviest teeth out, you know, just in the world ever known, by far are tusks. So tusks are technically modified incisors or canines. So it's like literally the tooth like we have are the pointy teeth growing out of the mouth 
and in some cases up through the head and all sorts of other weird directions and just getting incredibly massive. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens on elephants. That's what happens on mastodon. And the mastodon actually has the world record, according to Guinness, for the longest tusk. And it measures 5.02 meters or 16 and a half feet long, (laughs) which is insane. And I think it's why our friends at Western Science Center are always talking about how great Mastodon is because they have bigger tusks than Mm -hmm. mammoths. But I'm not exactly sure about the weight of that tusk that's 16 and a half feet long, but the record elephant tusk that was a little bit over half that length was about 100 kilograms or 200 pounds. So the Mastodon probably were about twice that, you know, a couple hundred kilograms. (laughs) So very hefty. Yeah, that's that's a massive tooth, much heavier than a person or two. So those are, you know, those are neat. Tusks are cool. They technically are the biggest teeth that anything has ever had, but they're not really teeth teeth. They're basically used for competing for mates or display and things like that. They're not used for chewing like a T-Rex tooth is, so it's not really analogous. In terms of teeth used for hunting, technically, I would say the biggest tooth used for hunting is baleen. Oh, clever. (laughs) Yeah. Whales are carnivores. Their baleen are used to trap prey, and that's you know what they use their baleen plates for. And this is really weird. I never really looked in detail at what whale baleen is like. It's fascinating. I highly recommend you look up what baleen plates look like. So a whale has tons of baleen plates, usually hundreds of plates in their mouth, and each individual plate is very thin, but actually quite deep. So it's not, I always imagine it being kind of like a comb in the mouth. It's more like a bunch of thick sheets lined up in a row. Baleen plates are rigid, even though they're made mostly out of alpha keratin. And alpha keratin is found in mammalian nails, hair, and horns. But usually alpha keratin air dries in order to firm up and increase its strength But obviously, whales can't air dry their baleen, so they rely on calcification to stiffen them up, Hmm. which means that even though baleen is usually referred to as keratin, it actually has a lot of calcium in it, just like our teeth. Oh, weird. Yeah, so I I think baleen is probably a closer analog to a tooth than a tusk is because it actually stays inside the mouth. It's used for catching food, and it has a lot of calcium in it. It's stiff, all that stuff. In cross-section, the shape of a baleen plate also isn't that far off from a T-Rex tooth. It starts out fairly broad at where it contacts the roof of the mouth, and then it tapers down to a point at the bottom. However, they are incredibly thin, so it is almost like you take a cross-section of it and scale it way up, and that's what the shape of a baleen plate is. The exact structure of baleen plates is also really fascinating. I found a great paper from 2010 describing it. It's basically tightly packed keratin fibers, and they're sort of analogous to horn cells, and then those are held together by calcium salt crystals. So it's just a really interesting structure. And then the inside of the baleen plate gets worn down by the tongue, and it wears away like those calcium crystals and stuff, and that's what gives it that like fuzzy, filtery surface. Oh, It's the inner horn cells, those keratin fibers, 
breaking free from that calcium matrix that holds it all together. And that's what gives it the big filtering surface that traps the food inside it. Also, I didn't mention it, but baleen is only on the, it's only like a top row of teeth. They don't have any teeth or anything on the bottom. They just have their tongue that goes in the middle between the baleen on just the top. Hmm. Which is partly why the baleen plates are so huge because it has to cover the whole mouth opening. They don't have interlocking top and bottom teeth. Mm -hmm. The biggest baleen you'll find is on bowhead whales. A recent study I found had the largest baleen plate at 409 centimeters or 13 feet 5 inches long. Whales are so huge. (laughs) They really are. Bowhead whales have ridiculous mouths too. This study was looking at sort of the shape of the baleen and how it changed and again it's actually kind of funny because it, it's not that different than t-rex where it starts out thin in the front and then it gets thicker and then it gets thin again at the back because the shape of the jaw and all that but unfortunately since they were looking at the shape they didn't give a weight estimate i only found one reference it's kind of a shaky reference saying that a baleen plate can weigh up to 200 pounds or about 90 kilograms which isn't far behind a tusk. And I wouldn't be surprised if this exceptionally huge one might weigh about as much as a tusk because it's, I mean, it's 13 feet long. It's quite broad and it's made out of keratin and calcium. So Mm -hmm. it's pretty dense. So that's baleen. Baleen's pretty awesome. In terms of teeth used for hunting larger prey, the largest teeth that I think you can find that are used in hunting are on a sperm whale, (laughs) another whale weirdly sperm whales usually only have teeth in their lower jaw they don't have any upper jaw teeth like the baleen whales they're the exact opposite and their teeth from their lower jaw fit into sockets in the upper jaw which is just super strange looking like they have this gummy tissue on the top with holes in it for their teeth to fit into their teeth are cone shaped pretty similar to a mosasaurus more similar at least to a mosasaurus than a tyrannosaurus but even weirder than that is that lots of sperm whales have absolutely no teeth and they still successfully hunt. Like birds. Yeah, it is like birds, except they don't have a beak. They right. just have this gummy palate thing going on. And that's led to a recent hypothesis that they may just use their teeth for competing for mates or something else, and the teeth might not actually be necessary for hunting for prey. The teeth in a sperm whale weigh up to one kilogram or about 2.2 pounds, which is about the same as the biggest T-Rex teeth. And they are a little bit shorter than a T-Rex tooth at about 20 centimeters or 8 inches with, I don't know, maybe a third of that exposed. But they're a little bit broader than a T-Rex tooth, which is, you know, more cone-shaped. And that's how they can weigh about the same, despite being a little smaller. If we go back in time a little bit, you can get to Leviathan, or sometimes Leviathan, (laughs) which is a sperm whale relative from about 10 million years ago. And it had 13-inch teeth. And that was a young individual, so certainly their teeth probably exceeded T-Rex in size, both in terms of the exposed amount of tooth and if you're including the root. So those are some of the biggest teeth for hunting, or maybe not (laughs) in the case of sperm whales. But in terms of like the best analog to a T-Rex, I think maybe cats are the best analog (laughs) because they're apex predators. They've got big teeth. The Bornean clouded leopard has canines that are about two inches or five centimeters long. And I believe that's the exposed amount of tooth based on pictures. Yeah, I don't think that includes root. There isn't a lot of good data on them, though, since they were only recognized as their own species in 2017. 
and Bornean clouded leopards only weigh at most 50 pounds or about 23 kilograms. Cats are weird. They're not that much bigger than a house cat. They're just a little bit bigger than a bobcat on average. With huge teeth. Yeah. So it's really crazy because I was I figured it would be a lion or a tiger. And they do, maybe lions and tigers might have slightly larger teeth. But I'm going to give the tie break to the Bornean clouded leopard because it's a tenth of the size of the tiger, but with similar sized teeth, which is just crazy. The teeth in its mouth look ridiculous. It's almost like saber tooth cat level of teeth. So that's maybe the best analog for a terrestrial animal, the Bornean clouded leopard. It's the best I could come up with. But if you're going to go outside of purely terrestrial animals and whales, the best modern analog is probably the saltwater crocodile. This is almost always the animal that scientists use when they're trying to find a modern analog to compare to T-Rex and they're trying to do bite force measurements or anything at all. Usually salties are the way to go. Salties. <laughs> That's what they call them where they're from. Mm. The largest tooth position in a salty is in roughly the same position as a T-Rex, about four back on the snout, like sort of the middle front of the snout. The largest claim I could find for a tooth in a salty is about 13 centimeters or five inches long, which is getting up there. It's nowhere near T-Rex, but it's pretty big. Again, I think probably only about two inches of that is exposed, but it is a really conical and powerful looking tooth. And we know it's not just powerful looking. It is, in fact, very powerful, much more so than a cat, probably in the same ballpark as T-Rex. Most of the estimates have the bite force of a salty at about half of a T-Rex. So yeah, the teeth on a saltwater crocodile, probably the best analog. They're not that big. They're probably not that heavy. You know, if you want a big heavy tooth, you look at a tusk or you look at a whale. But if you're looking for something with the bite force and, you know, the power of a T-Rex, a smaller tooth on a saltwater crocodile is probably a better analogy. Hmm. So many different kinds of teeth. There are. And, and this was a very pared down list from what I originally <laughs> have. I put down some serious erected Romeo Burrows <laughs> with this fun fact. And that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. Thank you for listening. Patreon.com slash Ino Dino. That's the place to go to get your rewards or sign up if you haven't already. Thanks again and until next time. Good day.